I'd like to begin tonight with the chanting of the refuges and precepts together. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Saranang Gachami Dhammang Saranang Gachami Sangam Saranang Gachami Dutiyampi Buddhang Saranang Gachami Dutiyampi Dhammang Saranang Chami Dutiyampi Sangam Saranang Chami Tatiyampi Budang Saranang Chami Tatiyampi Damang Saranang Chami Tatiyampi Sangam Saranang Chami Anati pata veramani sika parang samadhyami adina dana veramani sika parang samadhyami abramacharya veramani sika parang samadhyami musawada Veramani Sika Parang Samadhyami Sura Maria Majapamadatana Veramani Sika Parang Samadhyami Vikala Bojana Veramani Sika Parang Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana Veramani Sikaparang Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramani Sikaparang Samadhyami Idam me silam Magapalanyanasa Pachayo Otu
want to begin tonight by just saying um, what's foremost in my heart this evening. And that is a deep appreciation for the work that you're all doing here. I had, I've had a couple of days where just the events of the world, and this is not you know, some catastrophic thing that's happened, but the ongoing current events of the world just really saddening me. And then, you know, in the mail, receiving appeals from all different kinds of organizations. And, you know, usually a couple times a year, uh, I'll either collect them or as they come in, realize, you know, I just can't give to everybody. But when I would receive them, both through the mail and email, it was like every time I looked, it, it just spoke to my heart, some, something else that was calling uh, upon me to give towards a very worthy cause. And it just caused me to reflect on the world we live in, the level of delusion in the world, the level of ignorance, unwise action. And just the knowing that it's hard to see in the world what's helpful, what's useful. And then, you know, I just so appreciate the fact that we are gathered here really to look so deeply into the roots of suffering, the cause of suffering. And, you know, that we're pulled here by that movement of the heart to alleviate the pain. I can see, you know, for me today, it was, you know, so many tender moments of that, that if I didn't feel like I was doing this work, I would probably feel broken by it know that it would be too much to bear. But knowing what we're doing, knowing, having some inkling of what's possible, helps me to be with it. Helps me to realize that on every level in life, I can only do the best that I can. But that there is this necessity to do this work, to look deeply. Last night, Joseph ended the last part of his talk by speaking about wisdom. And I wanted to continue on speaking about wisdom this evening, Uh, in particular tonight speaking about wisdom by way of right view and some of the things the Buddha pointed to. The wisdom aspect of this practice is so important it really distinguishes it. And, you know, in my own experience, I have to say that the taste of wisdom is like no other taste. The taste of seeing clearly. The taste of deepening understanding. And in our lives, we have moments of this, And probably those moments where we had some sniff of the truth is a part of what brought us here. The path of wisdom is the path that we're following 
through this meditation practice that we're doing. It's a way of deepening our understanding. And as Joseph said last night, right view is where we are able to see things in their nature as they are. And this is what our practice helps us to do. This practice is insight meditation, where we have insight into the three characteristics that are common to all experience, that these experiences are all impermanent in their nature, that they're all unsatisfactory due to their impermanence, that they're not lasting, that we can't find happiness in the experiences, and that they're all insubstantial. This is what we come to see and in the scene of understand more clearly the causes of suffering. And in understanding the causes of suffering, we stop acting in ways that perpetuate the pain, the distress, and rest in the way things are. The path as the Buddha laid it out both begins and ends with wisdom. And this is when he was speaking about it by laying out what's called the Noble Eightfold Path. This is the the different... I'm just briefly going to say them. I'm not going into the different aspects of the, the Eightfold Path tonight, but it's right view, right intention, right... Uh, speech, right action, um, speed action, speech action. What's that? Livelihood. Sorry. <laughs> um, right, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And so the wisdom aspect of this path is right view, or right understanding, and right intention. And it always interested me that the Buddha said the path begins with this. But I can see there's a couple of good reasons why this is so. In order to follow this path, there has to be a glimmer of wisdom, where we've tasted of the sense of possibility, where uh, we have some enough inspiration to begin to move on the journey, to want to, to aspire to wake up. So we need to have some small voice of wisdom in there to begin the journey. But he also by beginning with right view, was speaking to the fact that it's helpful to have a context for the work that we're doing here. This is a a kind of a different kind of wisdom. 
And just to say that there, you know, in the teachings are three kinds of wisdom. The first is sutta maya panya, which is information that we gather. So we hear the teachings, we get instruction, and this is a type of wisdom. This is a type of information. You know, because it's going to be really helpful to us if we get information that is correct, useful. And so, you know, at the, in, in, as coming to a retreat, you know, we give Dharma talks, we give instructions. This is all a way that we're gathering this information. And then you've probably noticed as you sit there that this information is with you. You know, it could be in the voice, the voice in the back of the mind that's saying, well, why don't you try this? Or, or it might be giving some perspective to what you're doing. Uh, an example of this being that we keep talking about seeing things in its nature rather than seeing something as being mine. You know, so the difference between... Um, experiencing fear and seeing the nature of fear, the way the mind is when fear is present, and what's happening when it's the story about my fear and the thoughts are perpetuating it. That sometimes when we're really caught in the fear, if we remember this piece of information about see it in its nature, see it as it is, knowing this is, this is just fear. This is the nature of fear. This is information that we then, you know, we process, we digest, we look at in our own experience, and this becomes another level of wisdom, which is called chintamaya panya, where we're actually applying what we've heard And then we keep applying what we've heard and we find at some point that there's direct experience and the understanding that comes from it. And this is bhavana maya panya. This is an intuitive wisdom that we can't force. We can't make happen but it comes about through this steadiness of mind, this application of mindfulness. And out of that comes a deepening wisdom. So tonight in my talk, a lot of what I'm going to be speaking about is really on the level of giving you some information some aspects of right view that the Buddha pointed to. And, you know, I, I just often get this picture of the Buddha sitting at the top of the mountain, having climbed to the top of the mountain. And he knows both of the potential of the journey, what's possible as human beings. And sitting there, he can view the terrain. And he points to what needs to be seen in order to free the mind. You know, he's a very pragmatic teacher. He, he pointed towards what is useful for us. 
what is useful for us who are sitting at the bottom of the mountain and don't often see so clearly. You know, because we have habits of misperception, habits of, um, you know, where we're just moved in habituated ways and ah, can't always distinguish what the truth is. He explained that there are levels of distortion that happen. That, you know, it's not because we're, we're bad, horrible beings that we don't see clearly, but simply because we don't have the steadiness of mind to recognize things as they are. And he said we experience distortion uh, by way of distortion of perception, by way of distortion of thoughts, and distortion of views. So this first piece being distortion of perception. Now it's where there's some experience through any of the sense doors and it's not seen clearly and yet we believe that whatever we saw is the way things are and live as if that's true. It can, you know, we, we see it in many different ways. Um, I had an experience on retreat once where I was sharing a room with a friend and it was a very tiny room. And there was only enough space in the room. Uh, like if I was getting dressed and she needed to go to the bathroom, I had to move out of her way. And so one day this was happening. She wanted to go to the bathroom. I moved out of her way. And I'm, you know, as I'm getting dressed, practicing mindfulness um, as best I can. And she goes into the bathroom. And I know she's gone into the bathroom. And then a few minutes later, all of a sudden, I see something. You know, it's like seeing something out of the corner of your eye. And it was jarring in the scene of it. And then in the next moment, there's the scene of a bald head. And then in the next moment, there's the thought, fear arose really strongly. And there's the thought, it's an alien. <laughs> you know, and a moment before, I had known my friend had gone into the bathroom. She was a nun, so she had a shaved head. But... You know, in that moment of misperception, there was fear, panic, and it all started to perpetuate. And we have many moments of misperception in our lives where we don't. You know, walking outside at night, I constantly, ah, coming over here tonight, just a moment of misperception. You know, there was a thump in the woods beside me. And, you know, first there was the hearing, and then there was just this whole flurry of possible things that was. And then I realized it was just something falling from a tree. But, you know, in these moments of misperceptions, we can have strong reactions. And many times we don't check that out. We don't look. We don't, we don't have the stability that we're working with to see more clearly. And then from these perceptions, we find the thoughts form. And then these thoughts, which were based on misperceptions to begin with, we totally believe to be true. And we find this, it, being on retreat is such a great place to explore this. Because our fellow yogis, do we have stories about them? 
maybe the odd one, <laughs> or maybe it's just me that doesn't. <laughs> I don't know. But we just find that, you know, we get one piece of information and we make up a story about it. I think it was spoken about Vipassana romance where how it can happen on retreat that we can at times experience a, a strong attraction to somebody. And out of that, we may start to build stories. I had a friend who was once sitting this retreat, and during the retreat, she became attracted to another person. At the end of the retreat, she was talking to me and telling me about her experience. And she said, you know, there's this, per- this man that was here, and it- she spoke as if it was her soulmate. She said, when we would be in close proximity to each other, the vibrations between us would be dancing. That he would often sit near where she sat. And, you know, it was just this complete love affair as they ate. (laughs) They both did yoga. And lo and behold, they did it at the same time. And then she said, you know, after tea, I like to go outside. And he would follow. She was in the state of enchantment as she was telling me about it. And the, the sad part was he'd left the retreat. But she, you know, had some stick, stick with itness, And she asked questions, found out who he was, where he lived, found his phone number. She called him up and described who she was, the love of her life, her soulmate. And he responded by saying, Oh, I think I vaguely remember who you are. (laughs) But she had this whole story going. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? And how much do we do it in our lives? You know, that we make up stories about everything. And they're based on misperception, not seeing clearly. And then we live as if they are true. And then these thoughts, which were not based on truth, start to solidify even more. And they become our views, opinions, about how things are. I'd like to share a story, I think, which I think it's just classic in describing this aspect of um, Views. Okay, this is an actual transcript of a radio conversation between a U.S. naval ship with the Canadian authorities authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. The Americans, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians, recommend that you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. The Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet, We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, 
and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> Wars happen from attachment to views which are based on distorted perceptions. These habits that have solidified and we just become bound in them. The Buddha said that these, because of these distortions, we then take what is impermanent to be permanent, what is unsatisfactory to be satisfactory, and what is not self to be self, what is unlovely to be lovely. So, if we have this tendency towards misperception, we need to look towards what will help us see clearly. And, you know, so far in the retreat, we've been giving many instructions, information to help us to do this. But tonight I wanted to speak about two aspects of right view that the Buddha spoke about. He said it was really helpful to come to understand karma, the laws of cause and effect. And this is not the promised karma talk. (laughs) I'm just going to be touching upon it tonight (laughs) because it is um, something that we can look to over and over again in our experience, that it's so, it becomes so clear by practicing. And so if we have some framework for understanding that in, in a simple way, because, you know, I, I am not one of the great intellectual scholars of this time. Um, and what I have learned mostly comes from my practice. And so I can only speak of it in very simple terms. And karma has many layers to it, complexities to it. But in my own experience, it has been so immensely helpful to just really begin to see the uh, cause and effect at work in my mind. You know, just as simple as seeing when anger is present, the effect of it. When that anger is fed, the effect of it. When loving kindness is in the mind, the effect of it. It's like it's, it's just greeting us as we sit here. But if we've never heard of it, we, you know, it might take a while to really understand that's what's being seen. So the law of karma, karma literally means action. Technically, it means volitional action. It's uh, where 
You know, what we do, what we say, has an effect. There's an impact. It plants seeds out of which further conditions will arise. I heard the saying once about karma that it means that you don't get away with anything. On one level, it's really true. We don't get away with anything. But I think that can have a connotation that can be a little bit negative. Or can, you know, for myself, when I first heard about karma, I thought it was going to be where all of the bad things I ever did in my life came back to me. You know, and I didn't reflect on the wholesome. You know, karma was bad news. And yet there's wholesome karma. And so it's really just this understanding that how we meet life in this moment has consequences. So if we, you know, if somebody comes and vents their anger on us and we vent right back, that's going to have consequences. When we meet life with a heart of generosity, that too has consequences. I mean, if you think of somebody you know who just by their nature is very generous, the atmosphere that is around them, that people tend to trust them, people are at ease around them, it's easy to be with them. There's an effect from it. We find that there's wholesome karma or wholesome actions, wholesome volition. And that is where the action is skillful. It's helpful on the journey of awakening. It um, is spiritually beneficial And it ripens as happiness and good fortune. And then we find, oh, just to say, do I want to say that? (laughs) Um, Well, okay, and then there's unwholesome karma actions which lead to more suffering. They're unskillful, cause pain to ourselves or others. They're rooted in greed hatred, and delusion, and they ripen as states of anger, jealousy, frustration, laziness, pride. We have a choice in our life as to what seeds we plant. The results of past actions, they will ripen when conditions are right. And that we don't have control over. But we do when, you know, so for in a moment where anger is arising in us can be a result of unwholesome past actions. So we could sit there and get really judgmental of ourselves or look at you idiot you you must have done something really bad in the past and this is what's happening to you now but is that helpful no it's not helpful but if we sit by way of not being victim to anger but facing anger looking to what can be understood how this can be known in a helpful way 
we're not perpetuating those seeds. There's a a story from an old Cherokee story. Uh, One evening, an old Cherokee told me his grandson uh, was telling his grandson about a battle that was going on inside him. He said, my son, it is between two wolves. One is evil, anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false, pride, superiority, and ego. The other is good, joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The grandson thought about this for a moment, and then he asked his grandfather, Which wolf wins? And the old Cherokee simply replied, The one I feed. If we feed our habits of anger, jealousy, pride, this is what will win. This is what we'll see the effect of in our lives. You know, we can see it clearly on a day you know, when we so-called get up out of bed on the wrong side, where aversion is present. And instead of being mindful of it, we feed it. And everywhere we go, that aversion hits us in the face. Or we can feed the seeds of loving-kindness, generosity, wisdom, We can really have a sense of how karma works through working with the precepts, living the precepts. The very immediate thing that becomes quite knowable very quickly in practice is that we see the results of our past actions when we sit down in silence, the memories that come back. Now, if we did things we don't feel good about, they will often repeatedly arise in our mind. If we're not mindful, it will lead us into guilt, feeling horrible about ourselves. If we have been you know, living life skillfully, as we sit down, we sit down with the joy of virtue, that the, the mind finds it easy to collect itself. It's not continually replaying these tapes. Just to say that, you know, if we are sitting here and having a lot of memories from the past come up, this is where we can really plant the wholesome seeds in having that willingness to Acknowledge, see, feel in this moment the impact of that memory without perpetuating the story, but just allowing whatever needs to be felt to be there. 
there's a dog that's been in my life. His name is Max. And Max is a, he was bred from a pit bull and a bull mastiff. And in meeting Max, being around Max, I came to see something of what the karma of having pit bull genetics may be, where, you know, that it tends to be when he's backed into a corner, he moves into aggression. You know, it's almost like it's in his cells. And but I, what I noticed with Max is that, well, one day I was out walking. I was walking down the, around the back of the loop, and sometimes they, they shift cow manure from one field to another, and it was dropping all along the road. And he had this great paste for cow manure. He loved to eat it. And Max also then would like to turn around and kiss me, <laughs> as dogs do, and he had a huge tongue. So you can imagine this was not such an exciting um, proposal to me. So when he was eating it, and besides, you know, just the thought of what he was eating was a bit strong for me. So I was trying to get him to stop, and I kept telling him, no, no, no. And he wasn't listening. He wasn't listening. He's, you know, Pitbull can fixate on something, and um, they just want what they want. And then finally, you know, I just hit him. So I whacked him, and he bit me. And, you know, at first, it, w- it wasn't a bad bite. He just put his teeth around my hand. And um, it was shocking. But then I did reflect on how I had hit him first. (laughs) So (laughs) it took me a while to realize that. (laughs) But what was interesting to me about Max was this was how he would react when he's backed into a corner. But then he would go into remorse. He would feel bad about what he did. And, you know, having watched Max do this a number of times, and now he's much older, very old, in fact, I really have the sense that he has worked through. He, you know, I don't know, you know, I could be really projecting here. (laughs) Which it sounds like I might be. (laughs) But he's not prone to it in the same way. And, you know, it's like we have these habits, you know, our, our past karma ripening and not always in the way that we like, but that if we pay attention, if we look, understanding can come. Just in a moment of mindfulness, we can see something of the effects. You know, in the moment when uh, anger is really strong in the mind, in uh, and it's recognized, mindfulness has a coolness to it. That coolness that comes from clear seeing. I've seen, you know, when I've been, you know, in a heated argument. And I just had that one moment of recognition. It's for that moment, the whole momentum of that anger is stopped. There's a coolness. 
So it's really through our practice looking to see cause and effect. Not looking by figuring out, but it reveals itself as we look. It can be seen. And I have found the understanding of karma to be very empowering. And this is not just because, you know, the sense of having a deepening understanding of planting wholesome seeds, that's really helpful. But in moments where I've done something that was not based in wisdom, that was done out of the habituated mind, not seeing clearly, but just in the recognition of that, realizing that I am responsible for my own karma, that this is a seat I can sit in, that I can take this seat. You know, one time I said something publicly that I felt really was unskillful. Actually, somebody pointed out to me it was unskillful. (laughs) And then I went, okay, it's unskillful. You know, then I recognized it. And it was really hard to be with until this, the phrase of equanimity, you know, all beings are owners of their own karma, came to me. And, and with that, there was a sense of empowerment. Okay, I will live with the consequences, but I will learn. It's so different when we have this desire or this interest in learning from whatever happens. And, you know, I always (laughs) have my own definition of karma where it's this um, personalized package of wake-up pills. The lessons in life we need to learn come to us as a result of past actions. There's something very freeing, too, in the aspect of it being cause and effect. Things are unfolding according to natural laws. The peace that's so freeing in this it's the piece that sometimes people are fearful of. That, that things, there, there is this selflessness in that there's no solid I, me, mine that this is all referring back to. But that causes and conditions are governed by laws and unfolding according to those laws. And with that, you know, that, that this um, selflessness doesn't mean that this is chaotic, random. There is laws governing it. And karma is one of these laws governing that unfolding. And it's a lawful process. It's nature. Nature unfolding. Understanding karma really helps us to pay attention to what we do 
what we say, how we live. Because it's the laws that govern the world in which we live. This is from a a sutra of the wise and the foolish. Um, Do not take lightly small misdeeds, believing they can do no harm. Even a tiny spark of fire can set alight a mountain of hay. Even the smallest acts can bring great benefit. So both with misdeeds and great acts. They can have consequences. Taking care. Looking and understanding this law in our own experience. The Buddha also talked about right view as being the realization in our own experience, own understanding of the Four Noble Truths that this, this understanding of these truths leads to liberation. And again, this is not a full talk on, the, of course not at this point, on the Four Noble Truths, but just touching on them. And I'm giving this information right now as a framework. And this is you know, that, that part of wisdom, giving context, so we have some idea of what we're looking into, why we're sitting with suffering. You know, why would anybody want to do this? You know, earlier in my life, I chose the, life, the path of celebration. You know, and that, um, you know, it's like having life, don't we want to rejoice? But not understanding that one needed to look deeply into suffering to find true happiness that it was that understanding that would unbind the heart. And with, without that deep understanding, it's only temporary. It's only you know, a, a state of joy, a state of happiness. With the real peace comes from understanding. So just in brief... The Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, that there is suffering, that there is unsavory aspects to this experience of this mind and body. I feel like in my life, you know, my younger life, I was kind of brought up in the Barbie doll culture where there was always this kind of happy face given to life, you know, that suffering was denied, not seen not and and out of that what happens is that when we hit something where there is suffering in our life which can come about through the aging process can come about through sickness um, can come about through encounters with death that when we hit that if we don't understand the truth of suffering we think we've done something wrong we're to blame that we, we, in our lives, take suffering personally. 
and it's painful. So the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, it's to stop taking personally the suffering and to be able to recognize the unpleasant elements without, you know, if every time in our meditation practice we hit uh, unpleasant experience and we define ourselves by it, it becomes miserable, horrible. Whereas, you know, as Joseph pointed to this morning, we just recognize unpleasant experience as unpleasant experience. We, we know it as a feeling tone of some experience, and it's not referring back to I, me, mine. There's so much more ease. The second noble truth being the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering being craving. Where we see craving in the desire for sense pleasure, the desire to be, the sense of self, I am. Um, and we also find a craving at times not to be. You know, that we're, we want to annihilate, get rid of, not to exist. In our practice, we look into craving in all of its forms to investigate it, to see it, so that we can understand. You know, as jo- I keep saying, as Joseph said, as jo- I don't... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but <laughs> it's our teacher. Looking, not, not, not meaning him. <laughs> he is too, but... <laughs> The craving when it's here. Look. <laughs> we're so afraid of our suffering that it'll be overwhelming and it's our teacher. <laughs> you know, we're looking the wrong way. But, you know, looking with that refuge of awareness, mindfulness. Let it speak. Because, <laughs> you know, when we see it clearly, the mind lets go of its own accord. When we understand And then there we are, right in the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. From seeing for ourselves. And this is to be realized. And then the fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path. The, the path that the Buddha laid out, and this is to be developed. This is what we're doing here in our practice. Right view. We don't not, you know, in the beginning we don't have it in our own experience. We don't see clearly. But looking towards these aspects of experience, that's what the Buddha, you know, sitting on the top of the mountain, he was trying to point towards what is helpful in our own experience that we can look towards 
that will help us to see things as they are. Understanding the law of karma. Looking into suffering. The truth of suffering. Cause of suffering. So in our practice, can we take our seat? Can we look whatever's meeting us? Look directly, not through our usual habituated ways of seeing, not through the thinking about, figuring out about, analyzing, but really letting life speak to us. And learning, listening, letting that wisdom deepen of its own accord. I'd like to share a teaching from Sayadaw Utejaniya. Once you truly understand the benefits of the practice, you will never stop practicing. You will always keep going wherever you are. When you are really able to apply the Dharma in your life and start seeing the difference it makes, then the qualities of the Dharma will become obvious. The qualities of the Dharma will come alive for you they will become meaningful to you. And this is what's happening as we do this work, as we practice. And I, by way of inspiration, I'd like to just close with a poem from a Chinese Buddhist nun who lived in the 13th century. Her name was Miozan. In the shade of two trees and the hanging green of the cliffs, one lamp for a thousand years broke open upon the dark barriers. I, too, now realize that phenomena are nothing but a magic show and happily grow old among the mist, the rivers, and the stones. Let's sit for a moment.
May the wholesome energy that arises from our practice be dedicated to the welfare and liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.